My name's Cameron, and I'm, I've been one of the pastors here. Uh, today, as we've mentioned, it marks, marks a day when uh, I am no longer one of the pastors here, which is bittersweet um, in all kinds of ways we're gonna talk about. Uh, but to start, I wanted, I wanted to just acknowledge, acknowledge something that I think, I think most of us know intuitively, but just wanna speak it, and that's that goodbyes are not one size fits all. And by that I mean a, a goodbye can be a hugely important and significant thing in your life, or it can be insignificant and not super meaningful. Some goodbyes are just devastating, full of pain, anguish. Uh, some are filled with gratitude and joy and excitement. Some goodbyes are forced upon you, others you freely choose. Um, in short, some goodbyes are good, some are bad. But let's talk about good goodbyes. Let's talk about good goodbyes. Uh, of course, my mind naturally drifts to film almost all the time uh, and in any circumstance, but uh, in this one, it, it, it seemed appropriate. You can be the judge, but I, I, could, I thought of some truly iconic, like wonderful, good goodbyes that have been, been captured in film. Like, we only need to mention the name E.T. If you've seen that film, E.T. and Elliot have to say goodbye, and it's good. Uh, you think of Rick and Ilsa in Casablanca. You think of Truman and his TV audience in The Truman Show. Remember that one? It's a good goodbye. These character names aren't super iconic, but the film maybe is. But I think of Bob and Charlotte in Lost in Translation. Or even John Connor and the T-100 in Terminator 2. Remember that? Arnold lowering into the lava with a thumbs up. It has to be done, that's the only way to save the future of humanity. But it's sad, because now Arnold the robot can give thumbs ups. But the, the, the king of this sort of thing, for me, without dispute, comes in Toy Story 3. You seen that movie? Oh, yeah, there it is. There it is, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna spoil the end of that movie. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. It's, 10 years old, it's beautiful. Um, if you're really concerned about having it spoiled, you can, you can walk out for a few minutes. Uh, but Toy Story 3, so the Toy Story movies, most of you, I, I would guess, have seen at least one of them. Uh, super awesome. In fact, I would argue that the three Toy Story, the Toy Story trilogy, <laughs> fourth one was okay. Thir the first three, though, the trilogy, is one of the greatest cinematic trilogies ever made. I actually stand by that. Each movie deepens and enriches the one that came before it, um, and they just get better, in my opinion. But the stories, of course, is toys that belong to this boy named Andy, uh, who's a child in the first two films, and the, the, the films involve the, these toys, who it turns out are sentient. When humans aren't around, they come to life, and they scheme, and they go on adventures, and they're usually trying to get back to Andy, because they know their one purpose in life is to provide joy for kids and to be played with and to be an emotional support and to be a friend to these children. And so every film, they always have to get back to Andy because they, they exist to be there for him. Until the third movie. Until the third movie. The third movie was made a few years later 
and it's set a few years later and it picks up with Andy, uh, 18 years old, about to go off to college. And there's all kinds of plots and subplots at play, but, but one of them is that the toys get separated from Andy, uh, they get back to him, and there's a bit of a debate on whether he's gonna just give the toys away or donate them, or at one point they're in a trash bag in the attic. But it all culminates with him finally deciding he knows what he wants to do with his toys. And he puts them in a box, and he drives over to this little girl Bonnie's house, three or four years old, and he, there's this beautiful scene where he goes to her yard, she sort of sheepishly comes over, and one by one he takes the toys out of the box and he explains to Bonnie who this is and the adventures they've had together and like the wonderful character qualities that they've had. And you're just starting to get super sad because these toys have been there for this kid throughout all these movies and now he's finally getting to express how he feels about them as an adult with clarity of mind. And one by one, he says, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, this is Buzz, this is Rex. And of course, finally, he gets to Woody, the little cowboy doll. It's been his favorite. His room is covered in, in uh, cowboy stuff for most of the movies. And uh, I just remember that he, he picks up Woody and, and he says, but the thing that makes Woody special is that he'll never give up on you, ever. He'll be there for you no matter what. And he he starts to hand the toy over and he pauses and he takes it back for a moment and you could see like here's an, essentially an adult but he's conflicted, he has such a bond with this thing and he realizes, no, no, I've gotta give it away and he gives her Woody. And there's this beautiful montage where the two of them play with the toys together and then uh, Andy leaps. He gets in his car and he drives to college and the last, I believe the last line of the movie is Woody and, and Buzz and the toys sitting on the porch and Woody just says, so long, partner. And we're all reduced to rubble. <laughs> or I am every single time. And it's a good goodbye because, I mean, there, there could be a dark alternate version of Toy Story 3 where like Woody or, or Andy is maladjusted and he's like obsessed with his toys into adulthood. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's, he's just like, no one will ever take Woody. Buzz, you're staying with me. He can't hold, up, hold down a job, and it's, it's weird. Uh, but that's not the story they chose to tell. They chose to tell what is the natural and right and good course of events, which is children grow up, and we mourn it. And it is sad. It is sad to see a child grow out of things that once gave them immense joy and pleasure and excitement, but it's good because that's the natural course. It's right that, that Andy would get to the point where he could say goodbye to the toys and entrust the toys to a new generation of little kids that, that get to rediscover the joy of that all over again. And that doesn't mean he has to be flippant about it or deeply cynical about it, just, it just is. Children grow up and they leave childish things behind and it is sad at the same time, even as it's the exact right thing that needs to happen. That's a good goodbye. Um, so today, uh, we have one of these. We have a good, sad goodbye, door of hope. Um, for just over a year, I remember it was just last February, we had a family meeting over at the Fremont building uh, where Josh really laid out kind of the, the vision and, and the, the path that we were gonna take to get to the point where we are today. And 
He laid out a bit of the timeline, which we've more or less stuck to, and he laid out the big picture vision of how it was gonna work, which we've more or less stuck to, and a year and a month later, here we are. Here we are. Um, Door of Hope uh, is, has committed to plant a new church to send out a subset of our community to be a new community, and yet a distinct community from the one here. And as Tim mentioned, next Sunday, Door of Hope Northeast will have its first worship service this time. We'll be, we'll be wrapping up right about now as you guys are getting started. Um, and so, uh, we just need to acknowledge that makes today the last time that we all get to worship together as the Door of Hope family as part of one local church that worships together regularly. So we have to acknowledge that. Um, it's a good buy, but I'd argue that it's a good one. To help us process, um, I thought it would be fitting to jump into a, a story in Acts that I think captures one of, the, one of the most beautiful sort of good, goodbye moments uh, in all of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, go to Acts 20, verse 17. We'll be there. Um, and we'll just jump in. Uh, we'll take it, we'll, we'll breeze through this as fast as we can, um, section by sections. We'll start with the first verse, verse 17. It says, so now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so the setup here is that uh, Paul, well, and, and you have to remember his sort of pattern of ministry. So his, his pattern of pastoral or missionary activity was this, he would, he would go to a new, a new place, typically one that didn't have any Christians, and he would spend some number of time, it might be days or weeks, it might be years in some cases, and he would preach the gospel. He would tell them about the great love of God exemplified on the cross where Jesus bore the sins and the guilt of humanity and offering them his righteousness in return. And typically he would see lots of people come and respond to faith. And as they did, uh, if he stayed, was able to stay longer, he would stay and teach and train them up and try to help them grow into maturity. But at some point he'd have to move on. But his pattern, pattern we see in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 18, and now here in 20, is that eventually he would like to return back so there's these stories of Paul returning back to places where he had preached the gospel to both check in on how the new believers were doing and then often to appoint elders. So he would, he would come back and he'd see that there'd be people who had risen up in maturity and he would appoint them as elders and that would mean a formalized local church would be established. And then he would try to encourage them and scaffold them in their faith. And then of course you'd have to move on again. And so it's not a stretch to assume that presumably some of these elders that he's calling for right here are perhaps people that Paul himself led to faith years before who, were, who had now reached, reached the point where they were being entrusted with the, with the leadership and oversight of their local church community. And Paul got to see that whole journey play out and so he, he comes back. He doesn't go to Ephesus but he comes to Miletus and he calls for these elders to come and see him. And he has something important he needs to share with them. Um, so I would just note that this, this scene is it's sort of a capstone scene in the book of Acts. It's the last time that Paul's gonna give a big speech as a free man 
because immediately after this, he is gonna go to Jerusalem and then he's gonna get in some conflict and then he's gonna be captured, he's gonna be imprisoned and the entire rest of the book of Acts, Paul is a prisoner. He's still gonna preach the gospel, but he's in chains. He's gonna have to give defenses on trial. He's, he's, that's his mode of operation and so this is his last chance as a, as a, as a free person to give, to give encouragement to these leaders. And so this is in some way the culminating speech of all of his missionary activity throughout the book. So it's significant. And I, I do want to be clear that in choosing this text to talk about, I, I'm not at all trying to make a direct parallel between myself and Paul, between like Josh and Paul, or anyone and the elders of Door of Hope Southeast or anything like that. But the circumstance and, and, and the experience of having to say a goodbye, a gospel goodbye, is what we're most interested in right now. So what does Paul have to say to these people? Let's keep reading. Verse 18, it says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts by reminding them of his ministry amongst them, and we, we saw in Acts chapter 19, just before this, Paul spent just about three years teaching in Ephesus. So this wasn't just one of the ones he breezed through, he, he set up shop for three years there. And he, he wants to describe his ministry past. And so what are the things he, he points out? Well, he says that he lived among them the whole time. And so his ministry to them was marked by proximity, living life amongst them. Uh, it was marked with humility, marked by a humble posture, a self-sacrificing posture, a posture that didn't take itself too seriously. With tears, his ministry was marked by deep care and emotion. He wasn't just passively and distantly engaged with them, but he was moved by his time with them and amongst them. With trials, he says, so his, his ministry was marked by the experience of opposition, and then the implication is that he was steadfast even though he was experiencing trials there. Um, not shrinking from declaring anything profitable. So his his ministry was marked by boldness and comprehensiveness, meaning he did not shrink away from the hard things of the faith. And the implication here is that it will be tempting for any Christian leader to, to shrink away. But the call is to come and bring the whole counsel of God, all of, all of it, the easy stuff, the stuff that's easy on the ears, and the stuff that's hard. Have you ever heard a sermon like that here at Door of Hope? I have recently, it's good. It says he taught publicly and from house to house, so I think it, his ministry was marked by taking every opportunity, whether it's at the synagogue, whether it's in a public setting, or whether it's just a few people in a small, in a small house church, um, he took the opportunity. And then finally, testing, testifying of repentance and faith. Those two key words that are really the flip sides of the same coin. The idea that when the gospel is put forward of, of, of who Jesus is and what he's done, 
the, the response involves both of those things. It's, it's a turning from whatever it is that you are finding your satisfaction in, your sal- sense of salvation in, your sense of self-worth, your sense of joy, whatever else, wherever you're deriving meaning and security, even before God, the gospel demands that you leave it. The word repent is a 180 degree turn the opposite direction and that turn is synonymous with the turn toward Jesus, the turn of faith. So what Paul means to say here is that his, his ministry was marked by the gospel of Jesus and calling people to respond the, way, the only way that's appropriate which is to repent and believe. So what does faithful ministry look like? These are some good indicators. And I would just note, we don't have time to go any further than we, than we have right now into this, but if you are a man or a woman who aspires to Christian leadership of, of any kind, I think you do well, you do really well to consider this passage, to study it closely, to read it carefully, and to follow it. So, there's that. Let's keep going. So Paul's described his ministry past, now he wants to talk about what's coming up in the future. So let's read the next few verses here. Um, Verse 22, he says, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink, there that is again, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So here's what's coming up. Um, Paul has what is ostensibly really bad news. You see it? He, he says, number one, the Spirit has told me I've got to go to Jerusalem. Number two, the Spirit has told me that there is nothing for me anywhere except imprisonment and affliction. There's only pain. That's where God's leading me. And then maybe most devastating in this particular moment is that he is never going to see these people that he deeply loves, that he saw nurtured from spiritual death into spiritual life, into spiritual infancy, into spiritual parenthood. They're never gonna see him again. And he's never gonna see them again. The Spirit of God has made it clear. That sounds pretty bad. (laughs) That sounds pretty sad. So what gives Paul the guts and the courage and the fortitude and the obedience to press on despite it meaning guaranteed relational pain and imprisonment and affliction? Well, it's right there in verse 24. Let's highlight it. It's the gospel. Paul is overwhelmingly convinced that God has given him a mission to share the gospel and and Paul evidently believes that the good news is good enough, that that, that the promises of God found in the gospel, that, that Jesus Christ has borne every barrier between us and God, has cleared it all away, 
has graciously done what we did not deserve on our behalf and offered us salvation, the gift of life in him and, and unity and union with God and with one another into eternity future for any who would trust, repent. That that gospel is good enough to sacrifice anything for. Your freedom, your relationships, your life. And this raises the question, this was a question that sort of came up last week as well as Josh was sharing, but uh, why do any of us do things that are uncomfortable or difficult for Jesus? Why would we do that? I mean, Jesus does make these monumental claims on every part of our person, asking us to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow him. And our culture says the absolute opposite. Our our, our culture at every turn says, if anything's difficult, if anything's challenging, if anything uh, is uncomfortable, if anything isn't fun, if anything doesn't gratify your immediate desire, if anything challenges your assumed values, cut it out of your life. Just get rid of it. It's not worth your time. Just drop it. Drop those people. Drop those communities. Move on. But Paul's answer to that is no. We, he's gonna do these things, and, and though, I know there are many of you in this room, probably most of you in this room, that at some point or another have come across something, a circumstance, a sin that you're battling, um, a hard decision you've needed to make, whatever it may be, where you've had to count the cost and say, you know what, I'm actually gonna de- deny what I want because I actually do believe that what Jesus has is better for me, even though it's hard. We do these things because we have seen and trusted the goodness of God, especially and most prominently seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We, we trust that no matter how hard a God-honoring decision might be, it's worth it. It's worth it because because we're confident that he only has our deepest good in mind and not just our deepest good, not just your deepest good, which he does, but the deepest good of your family, the deepest good of your friends, the deepest good of the whole world, the deepest good of your your enemies, the deepest good of the creation itself. That That is exactly what's at the center of his heart and his will and every one of his commands and decrees and everything he does all of our deepest good. And, the, and the, this idea that no matter how much we're ostracized, no matter how much we lose in the here and now, no matter how much uh, pain is in, injected into our circumstance, uh, no matter what is taken from us, even up to and including our very lives, he's bigger than that as well. And that even our death is not the end of the story, but he has promises there too that he is gonna resurrect us the same way he was resurrected, that we might enjoy life with him into eternity future in a perfect, perfected new heavens and new earth with one another, with everyone who has bent the knee to Jesus, with endless time to enjoy him and one another in his world. So if that is the case, then we can do this. We can say yes to this. Amen? So that's Paul's future. And then he's gonna do do something else. He's gonna commission these elders 
to do something in particular. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. says, that's what's happened. That's what's going to happen. Here's what you do. He says, so pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul's gonna use this metaphor that's super common throughout the Old and New Testament. It's one of the chief metaphors to describe Christian leadership. Uh, and that's the imagery of a shepherd. And so he, he first tells the elders to watch over the flock. He compares their church community to a flock, a flock of sheep. We don't have to belabor that. I'm sure you've all heard that a million times. Uh, churches talked about in this way. But then the, the task is to attentively care for uh, God's church. And, and actually, the ESV is doing some interp- interpretation for us when it says to care for. Uh, that's a fine interpretation, but, but the word is literally to shepherd. It's, it's, po- it's, a, it's a form of poyo man. It's, uh, it's just the basic shepherd language. And so more literalistically, that would be translated to shepherd the church of God, to, to, to do all the things that shepherds do, to, to protect the sheep, to care for them, to remain close to them, to feed them, to guide them, to keep intruders and and dangers away because point three, uh, wolves are gonna come. Wolves are gonna come. I don't know if you've ever seen a wolf. I just, I'm sure that I've seen one, something like this before, but it just hit me. We were at a staff retreat at the Mount Angel Abbey earlier this week and they have all this crazy uh, taxidermy there and they have like five timber wolves. Have you ever seen a timber wolf? God-forsaken creatures, man. They are, the thing was like, I don't know, from here to here, it's this tall, and it's like just, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the taxidermy person was just like messing with us, but its face is just like super intense. I was, I was frankly, I had this fear that it was just gonna like turn its head and look at me at one point, and I knew there would be nothing I could do if it wanted me. So wolves, Wolves, he's continuing the shepherd metaphor. Wolves will come, and wolves are a shepherd's worst enemy because they come to steal, they come to kill, they come to destroy the flock. He says they're gonna come, and what's, it's, it's disturbing enough that they're gonna come from the outside. What's even more disturbing is that he says, and some of you may very well become wolves if you're not careful. Some of you may lead the flock astray so watch yourselves as well. So that's his commission to them. And then he's gonna do one more thing, and this is the end of the speech. He's finally gonna say, look, I'm going, so I can't be here to be a part of this. I can't be part of the solution. I, I can't be part of your, your elder team here or whatever else. He just says this, so I commend you three things. First, I commend you to God in verse 32. I commend you to God that that God himself, the great shepherd, the shepherd of shepherds, he will watch over you. So trust him. 
Turn into him more than you ever have before. Lean into him. Follow him. Remain close. Remain that, abide in him, essentially. Number two, not just to God, but to the word of his grace. The scriptures. At this point, Paul is probably thinking chiefly of the Old Testament, but it, but it certainly, uh, w- this would apply to uh, the New Testament as it formed as well. I commend you to the word of God's grace, the God-inspired word of God in the scriptures that can build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all who are sanctified. So trust God, trust his word, and then he finally says, and, and remember my example. He's done it already in this speech, but he returns again. He's like, look, look how I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. Paul's saying, on this particular missionary journey, he accepted no tithes. He, he took no one's money. He did his own work that he might have enough to be generous because he didn't want to have any possible suspicion that he was just there to take people's money or whatever else. So he says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's interesting. That's not found anywhere in the gospels. So we've got this great additional kind of Jesus tradition that Luke and Paul have recorded for us here in Acts. Um, I think it sounds like Jesus, don't you? Yeah, it's pretty Jesus-y. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Apparently that was something that Jesus regularly taught as well, that none of the gospels picked up. Um, So, trust God, trust his word, and follow my example. The way I've labored among you, go and do the same. And so that's it. Okay, made it through. This concludes Paul's final message to this group of church leaders. And I would just say again, if if you are a leader at Door of Hope at any level, or you aspire to leadership one day at any level, um, this is an incredibly important passage to study. Go write it down in your notebook and come back to it. It deserves more time than we've we've got for it today. Um, So here comes the emotional, really emotional part. So given all this, given their history, given what's coming, given the the sad heartbreak of of Paul not being able to be around for what comes next. We read the last few verses. When they had said these things, Paul knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced him and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. And then Acts 21, we're off to what comes next. And the emotions come out here powerfully. I mean, I mean notice, just imagine the scene that these, these leaders, again, given all this history they had together, they kneel and they pray. They kneel and they pray. And they wept with one another. And they embraced one another. They hugged one another. They kissed one another because they knew, they took Paul seriously, they knew what was coming. They knew that he meant what he said. And, you know, I don't know, perhaps at this moment you could imagine someone sort of getting cold feet. Well, it's actually kind of funny to imagine when they were praying, you know, there's always that person that has to like, and, uh, 
And, and amen, Lord. <laughs> if someone had to end the thing, it's probably sad to end it. And then they're, they're together and they finally get to the boat. And you imagine someone like, Paul, oh, you know, what if we, maybe we shouldn't do this. Have you thought maybe we just, we just don't do any of the stuff that you've just said? In fact, if you read on in Acts, there is a story. There's another group of Christians who get a prophecy from the Holy Spirit about Paul's suffering that's gonna come up. And they tell Paul, don't go. God told us what's gonna happen, don't go. And Paul actually has to, it's kind of a very interesting story. He says, no, you, essentially like, no, you, you've learned correctly, like you're discerning correctly that this is coming for me, but you're wrong in your application. I have to go. And don't try to stop me, because it's the will of God that I would go and suffer for the gospel. And so they do it. So they go. Paul boards the ship with his companions and they say their goodbyes and that's it. And it's a good goodbye because it's what needed to happen. That doesn't mean it's not sad. That doesn't mean anyone was unjustified for weeping, for crying. But they said goodbye. And so, that was Paul and the Ephesian elders, good, goodbye. And now it's time for ours. Now it's time for ours. You know, as, as Josh and myself and various staff and leaders, have, we've been discussing like this planting, Door of Hope Northeast. Um, the question of why has come up a, a, a lot of times in various circumstances. And, and there's lots of, an- you can answer a why question a million different ways. We've, we could probably give you, give you dozens of good reasons to, to become a church planting church, but here's just a few. Number one, our city needs to hear the gospel, and as people respond to the gospel, they need to have healthy church communities to come and plug into. And it's getting full here. Uh, on any given Sunday, it may more or less feel that way, but uh, over the last couple of months, we've hit historic numbers of attendance. Uh, in the all-time history of the church, we've had more people on Sundays than ever before. Um, you all certainly know that there's Sundays where children are turned away, uh, mo- many Sundays children are turned away from the children's ministry and so forth. Um, and there are various solutions to that, but the one we're not gonna do is just buy a megachurch building. Um, we're here in this wonderful space, in a, in a space that's conducive to a very communal uh, church. And so, um, so that puts the pressure on us to, to start planting communities, um, more communities around the city. And so uh, church planting, number two, it frees up space here and it reignites our evangelistic fire as people go. We're gonna send out about 150 adults and children this week. And that's not, I mean, that's in some ways a small percentage of the number of people that call Door of Hope home. But what it means is that as you look around here next week, that's gonna be a reminder to you to be actively engaged in inviting people to come, inviting people into your homes, sharing the good news, and being welcoming to the new people that are gonna come. It, it provides opportunity and need for people to backfill leadership roles and volunteer roles that are being left. Um, so it puts that front and center in our minds. Number three, church planting follows the apostles and the early church example. Once again, they go, they preach the gospel, and then at some point they say we're ready for a church, and they establish leaders, and churches happen. Church planting is what we see the early church doing. Seems like a good model to follow. 
Number four, church planting is statistically the best strategy for reaching non-believers with the gospel. We don't exactly know why that is, but the statistics would point us to the fact that in a church's first 10 years is when it tends to have the most of its evangelistic uh, success, new people coming into the faith, and so we wanna ride that momentum out. Number five, I think we've realized over time that, that church planting over against some sort of more, um, you know, one church, multiple congregational kind of model uh, plays especially well to our church's unique strengths and weaknesses, as well as our city's unique challenges and opportunities. And then finally, we would just say this, that, that in light of all these things, it's just our firm conviction that we want the gospel to go out powerfully and more widely than we want to maintain the status quo. That's at the heart of it. We're just doggedly committed. You know Josh is doggedly committed. You only have to listen to him for five minutes to know he's committed to the gospel going out more than maintaining the status quo or comfort. And so, this week, Again, there are about 150 of us, adults and children, who will no longer be worshiping alongside you in this space. We'll go from from brothers and sisters in a single local church to brothers and sisters in a family of churches, in sister churches, to brothers and sisters in the capital C church. And there are a lot of emotional, potential emotional responses to that, and we just, we're gonna talk about him for a second. For, it was funny, last service I sat next to a guy and in the greeting time I, I met him for the first time, his name was Doug, and uh, it was his second time attending. So he had no idea who, who I was. Of course he's like, oh, I'm some guy, you got a mic on your face. And I made the joke like, so like for Doug, I mean his emotional response is he just doesn't care about any of this. <laughs> And he felt awkward and I felt kind of bad and then I, I repaired with him after the service. It, of course it's a joke, but there are some of you, you've been around for a short amount of time, you're not particularly invested, you don't know enough of the folks that are leaving yet to really have a deep emotional investment in it. And I want you to hear this, that's okay. You don't have to be in sackcloth and ashes over this. You can just be content knowing like, awesome, our church is a multiplying church, I love it. Another one is excitement and passion. There are some of you in this room that are just fired up, whether you're coming or staying or whatever, you're just like, this is awesome, we're doing it, we're really becoming the thing that Josh has been talking about for years, we're, this is awesome. For others, you might be feeling confusion or frustration, like why would we mess with this good thing that we have? Why am I, you know, you, you maybe one of your very dear friends is, is making a choice in this that you're not, and so you recognize that's just gonna mean seeing a lot less of them. And you feel like, why, why are we messing with this? Why do we need another church? For some of you, it's, it's not emotional fireworks, it might just be a calm, trusting confidence. Like, this seems right, let's do it. For others, sadness and mourning. I just wanna say this, all of these things are okay to feel. And my hunch is that if you're feeling something, it's probably a combination, some combination of these things. It's probably not one simplistically. And, 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 and more than that, maybe you felt one way six months ago, you feel a different way today. Tomorrow, or next Sunday, you're gonna feel very differently. 
when the reality begins to set in. And some of you may not sort out your feelings about all this for a year. And that's okay too. That's okay too. If this story with Paul and the, the elders tells us anything, it's, it's okay to feel. And it's okay to be sad. And it's okay to grieve. And it's okay to do that on the timing that you need. But whatever your feelings, whether you land more or less on the side of, of like excitement or, or, or grief and sadness, my, my hope is that you will trust that as a church, that pouring ourselves out to multiply gospel-believing and preaching churches around our city is good, all the same. Whatever you feel, emotionally, that it's good. And so, I just wanna address a few groups here specifically, just, just, just as, as myself. Um, I hope this doesn't sound like an Oscar speech or something like that. Um, I've seen too many of those lately. Um, so, so first of all, I just wanna say to the, the staff and elders here at Southeast, let, let's see, okay, there's Greg, Seth right behind him. Help me out, if I see, there's Evan back there. Anybody, got anybody else in the room? I've gotta be missing someone, but that's okay. You know who you are. Um, to all of you, I, I just wanna say, um, both, both as someone who's attended the church for almost seven years and then been on staff for almost five, um, I love you. I love you guys and girls. Um, you've been a blessing to our family. I'm beyond grateful for your leadership in my life and, and, and what you've, how you've pointed my own family towards Jesus. Um, you're an incredibly gifted and godly team. Um, and I'm, I'm deeply going to miss working alongside of you, every one of you. Um, I love you. Um, to the volunteer leaders that I've gotten to serve with over the last few years, my, my main role until the last couple months was as the pastor of community groups here. I also led the prayer team for a season and various other things. Um, but I, I, to the volunteer leaders I've gotten to work with, I just wanna say, where are some of you? Well, let's, let's just do it. Uh, there's Kevin and Carol. We've got some Jessica, book club leader. Jeff, I see you. Oh, and there's Jackson. I guess I can't do this with everybody. That was like seven people in one row. Um, the rest of you know who you are. But to all of you, I just wanna say, I, I honestly and sincerely think you've made my job the best one at Door of Hope. And I can't tell you how many times I've come home at the end of a, of a work day, which almost feels funny to call it a work day some, some of the times, and just beamed to Susanna about how awesome these people I just met were, or these new leaders, or how much wisdom this set of leaders is, is, is exercising in this hard situation or whatever else. My job is effect, in effect spending time with uh, the bulk of the people in our church who are most excited about Jesus and willing to sacrifice their time and energy to make space for people to gather around him. That's not a bad gig. It's really not. Um, you're the ones, I really believe, who most help us be the church day in and day out. Um, 
And I would just say with all sincerity that, that you, um, that, that God has significantly grown my faith and trust in him through you. So thank you. I love you. Um, and then just to the congregation at large, to this, this church, um, whether or not I ever had a chance to meet you in the hallway, you know, in passing, uh, to be in a book club or a community group with you, um, whether or not we've had the chance to walk through something hard in kind of a pastoral care setting. Um, to whatever extent we know one another, I, I just, I truly believe that this church community is a unique one and a special one. Um, you are a group of people who, for whom your love for one another is a testimony to the outside world that you belong to Jesus and that he's real. And um, it has been an honor and a privilege to get to serve you as one of your pastors. Whether I know you or not, it really has been. So thank you. Um, so this is a goodbye. Um, here's, here's, it's not a goodbye to ever seeing each other again. So I don't have a prophecy from the Holy Spirit that uh, I will never lay eyes on any of you again. I just wanna clarify that. And the comic relief comes in right here. I think we're all gonna do Good Friday together in like a month. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, our churches are 3.5 miles apart. Not too big of a deal. We will do things together. I will probably be officing here half, half the time uh, to start. Uh, so this is not that kind of goodbye. It's not that kind of goodbye. Many of us are good friends regardless of what church we end up at and we're going to remain good friends. Uh, that happens all the time. And yet, we just, we need to, this is the day to acknowledge. It is a goodbye to a certain kind of relationship. It's goodbye to being part of the same local church community together. And all the time, we see this happen. People will, will leave, leave Door of Hope and they'll, they'll, oh, we feel drawn or called to this other church community and that's okay. Um, but there can be this mis mistaken thing that gets said. It's like, oh, and so nothing's gonna change. No, we're just gonna, you know, our relationship will be exactly the same. And in some ways that's true, but just don't discount the power of a local church community. Getting to see the same people week in and week out, getting to be in small group with people, serving together, worshiping together, there is a loss. It doesn't mean cutting off relationship, but it means saying, saying goodbye to a certain kind of relationship, a relationship that God has deemed really important, the members of a local church together. And so the call to all of us, for us going to Northeast and for you staying at Southeast is just to commit even deeper than you have before. Um, it may be tempting if especially if you end up with friends kind of split between the two churches to try to get out there in no man's land, and like, ah, oh, you know, I'll check, I'll check the upcoming sermons and see what sounds more interesting, and week A and B, I'll pop over here and be with these folks, week C and D, I'll be over here. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Because um, it's not healthy for you, and it's not healthy for our churches. Uh, that does not mean don't come visit us ever at Northeast. And that does not mean I'm not gonna come visit over here. Um, 
but it does mean don't find yourself waffling in a no man's land for too long because that's not, you're meant to commit to a people and live your life in close proximity to them. And so commit, friends, uh, to the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom in Portland as it is in heaven. Amen? Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select generosity and give online. Thanks again for listening.